We're going to continue our series in Proverbs, and for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, uh, it was almost a month ago, I had started this topic on worthy work, and for the first part, we talked about some of the obstacles and challenge to work. Today, we're actually going to talk about the work itself, and I'll be speaking from Proverbs as well as from a few New Testament passages. If you can recall th those weeks ago, and I'm um, not asking you to fully do that because I know that's not so easy, work has existed prior to sin. And you have to really keep that uh, sort of at the forefront of your understanding of work itself. Because I think so often we find work to be so challenging sometimes, laborious, tiring, exhausting, difficult. We tend to think that well, when I go to heaven, there's going to be no work. No, sorry to disappoint you. There will be work. But the reason why you don't like work sometimes is not because of the work itself per se, but it's because of what Moses describes as the thorns and thistles of work, the, the curse that God had given to the ground that no longer would produce fruitfully and freely, but rather only with thorns and thistles. And work became attached to that. But we know that work itself is not evil. When God created the world in six days and he described his work as good and very good, that's prior to sin. And obviously God doing anything is in no way bad or evil. And so, Recognize that also the absence of work actually is not uh, a, our sort of oasis or future hope, but rather it's misery. It's one of the reasons why so many people following retirement, when they no longer have a, a specific purpose in their work, quickly die. So again, keep this in mind. Work itself is not evil. There is blessing to work. But the question is, is our work worthy? Does it produce? Does it actually in some way reflect God and who he is in his work, in his labor? I'm going to look today at three purposes of this worthy work. Three reasons and sort of uh, impacts that it makes on us when we have this right perspective of work. First, worthy work builds the foundation of character. Secondly, worthy work blesses others. And third, worthy work reflects the Savior's work. So we'll first look at worthy work building the foundation of our character. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, a verse I'd quoted before last time, it says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A assumption, an assumption I want to rid you of is that uh, all poverty is caused by laziness. That is certainly not the case. And if you read the Bible, you know that there are many impoverished people who live in poverty because of the oppression of evil rulers or evil systems, because of sinful corruption, and sometimes because of persecution that we see in the New Testament people suffer from poverty. So not all poverty 
is due to laziness, but some poverty is due to laziness. And actually quite often, different types of poverty is due to laziness. Proverbs here is speaking about that type of poverty, the poverty that comes about due to laziness. Uh, you can recall, if you can recall the illustration of the slack arrow, you know that the string on a bow, if it's slack and there's no tension, the arrow cannot be shot and there's no hunting, there's no fruitfulness. So the Proverbs writer is saying that there's always a reason why we who are perhaps lazy in spirit do not work. And this laziness inhibits our productivity, which then brings about poverty. Another verse that describes it is, puts it like this, chapter 12, verse 11 of Proverbs. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. There is one labor that is uh, clearly a labor that requires regular, attentive work, and that's farming. We see this in whoever works his land has plenty of bread. Generally speaking, if the conditions are right, and obviously this is dependent on weather, which is ultimately controlled by God himself, but as to what I can do or what the farmer can do, it produces much fruit. Uh, I was coming back from a camp yesterday with uh, Sua, and as we were driving back from sort of this rural area of uh, California, Northern California, um, as we're driving on this smaller road, you see, we saw the sign and it said fresh strawberries and blackberries. And you know what I'm talking about, those farmer signs, stands. And so we pulled off the side of the road and you get to this, it was a really, you know, sort of farm-like stand. And uh, they were selling these incredibly sweet blackberries. And I'm not a huge blackberry fan, but they were so good, blackberries and strawberries. But behind the stand was, interestingly enough, someone unexpected. It was an Asian woman, actually, and his, her son. She was about 40. And I know these are all generalizations, so I'm really sorry about this. But in my mind, I, it just sort of struck me that I was expecting in rural Northern California, in a farm stand, there was this Asian woman, and she was dressed in athletic gear. And I mean, she looked like someone who was sitting in our church. She, didn't look like what I imagine a farmer to look like. And so I started talking to her and asking her about farming. And she had just shared how her parents, her dad had come from, um, I think it was from China and had farmed there. And she, and she had went to school and her dad went to school and they said, I ah, forget it. Don't want to, don't want to do the corporate route. Let's go back to farming. And so they started this berry farm and just hearing her stories about how much work it takes to produce that good berry made me realize, wow, there's such value in the, in the regular, persistent, perseverant fruitfulness of farming. And that's exactly what Proverbs 12, 11 is saying. If you want sweet blackberries, the only way that happens is through just diligent, faithful labor. And there's no field like farming, agriculture, that sort of gives us that visual picture that the Proverbs writer is speaking of. But the worthless person, they will never produce that type of fruit. 
Paul takes this idea and in addressing the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he gives this description. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The bottom line is that poverty is a result of character, mostly, unless there's oppression and injustice. But if there's no oppression and injustice, then when you experience poverty, it's generally because there's some laziness involved. And it's not just financial poverty. There are different ways. For example, a student might be impoverished in their grades. And so if he or she doesn't work hard, doesn't read the assignments, well, guess what they're tempted to do when the test comes along? Maybe take a quick glance, maybe use some crib notes. Uh, there's, a, there's a temptation to cheat. And cheating is essentially another form of thievery. That's what Paul is describing. The reason why that cheating is even a possibility is because there hasn't been the regular, faithful, hard work diligence of their studies. And that's in all areas of life. We'll always be tempted to some respect of taking the lazy person's route. If we are regularly saying, giving, coming up with an excuse as to why we're late for something, if we're late for work, if we're late for Sunday worship, and it, we start at 11 a.m., and, oh, there's traffic. Oh, my children. There's always something. And if we really are honest with ourselves, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's because of I woke up a half hour later than I should have, or I took, took my time, or I was watching TV before I came, and, or whatever it might be. In any field, there's always this impoverishment and a lack of diligence that is actually causing me to lie, to cheat, to steal. But look at the contrast that Paul gives. What is the solution to thievery? The solution is not just simply a command, do not steal, right? He contrasts it, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. He's telling the church that there has to be a character change. That character change is going to reveal itself in a particular way, and it's actually to do the work. So if students, if your mom or dad says, I want you to go clean your room, and your room is just an absolute tornado, and so you go to your room and you say, okay, mom, and you pick up your bed sheet and your blanket and you just throw it on top, and then you kick off a few things here and there, push everything into piles, and you leave, and she comes back and says, you didn't do the job. And you say, but I did. Well, what is happening here is not the product itself. See, I think sometimes we are so caught up with the work, cleaning the room, vacuuming. I, okay, I don't like vacuuming. I don't know if any, some people probably do. I know some people actually do like vacuuming. but. Isn't it tempting when there's something there and you have to move it to actually vacuum underneath to not move it and just go around? And so you have that little crater of dust around it. You know, everything's clean, but the dust is right there and you can see it, 
but you don't want to push whatever it is or lift it up or put all the chairs up on top and then vacuum underneath. Anyone, I won't even ask, won't ask who does that, but the point of all of this is not the task. Really, does it really matter whether there's a little bit of dust underneath? No, ultimately not. But the task is only revealing something that's actually happening internally. And what's happening internally is my heart has grown lazy. I don't want to do it. It's just takes up my time. I have to labor a little bit more. But notice how Paul describes this work. He says, do honest work with your own hands. Honest meaning that God sees your labor. So the question is, when no one is watching you, are you faithful with your work? Do you actually do work consistently, diligently, no matter who's watching, whether you get rewarded or not, whether someone pats you on the back and says, good job, whether you get a promotion at work, whether you're paid more, do you still do it because ultimately you're doing it unto the Lord because he is watching and you actually care about that? That's what will stop a thief. So the church itself, yes, it consisted of thieves. It had some people who stole. Sometimes it was because they had no food and they were impoverished. There are times it's like that. But many other times, it's not because of that. You know, the person who steals something small when they're young, a piece of candy from a store, if left unchecked and if there's no character change, they're just going to be the, you know, the accountant later on who embezzles from their company because the character hasn't been shaped. So simply saying to a child, stop stealing, and then just leaving it at that is just going to lead to more stealing. But if the character is changed, and if this person is laboring honestly as though it's always unto the Lord, the stealing will stop. The lying will stop. A mother lion, when they teach their cubs to hunt for their prey, what they will do is they will oftentimes bring, say, um, an antelope or something larger and bring it to them. They'll sort of bite their neck and wound them so that they can't escape and run away, but they will actually wound them enough, but not enough to kill them. So they'll bring them in, and then these three or four little lion cubs will come, and they're so small, they can't kill this animal. Uh, but the process of learning slowly how to kill that animal is so important for those cubs because eventually they have to get to a point where they have to kill that animal. And if they don't, they will not survive. There's a lot to be learned in the process of our labors. And what is going on in your heart is so much more important than the actual work itself. It's, uh, in speaking with some who are physicians, there's a, there was a, a point I know where some of you who are doctors you had to work a certain amount of hours in your internship, and it was exhausting. But there was, a, I think, a law or a rule passed where it limited those hours. And talking to the older doctors, they always say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's very much like the old 
crotchety person, you know, who says, yeah, those people, when now they don't have to work as hard, so they don't really understand. And they have a point that there is something to the hard work itself in any field, in any area where the work, the diligence, the challenge, the perseverance, that's what develops someone skilled in their profession. And it's not just the technical expertise, which is also required, but that's not everything. So much more the life of faith that we learn so much as a believer of Christ in the everyday persistent labors of faith. So that's one of the reasons why we go before the Lord in his word regularly. It is because God's word is able to show us, lead us, protect us, guide us. But there's also something to be learned about the persistence of our character in doing it regularly, in prayer. Why is prayer so hard? Why is it so difficult to get on our knees and to even spend 10 minutes in prayer? Because our tendency is honestly to be lazy. And the laziness is really to say, I want to do what I want to do in my time and in the way that I want to do it. And prayer is all about depending on God's way in his time, in his means, in his methodology. And so we don't want to yield to that. And we're tired and we're worn and we're distracted. And so we say, I can, I can just, I don't really need that. I can do things my own way. There is a lot then that we're missing out on, not just in the momentary value of the work itself, but actually in the goal of it, that in the pursuit, in the diligence, in the perseverance, we actually grow in that. And so it shapes us. I really appreciate what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here. In his ex exposition on Jesus' story in Luke 6, on the uh, man who, wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on sand, he describes the foolish person this way. He says, foolish people are always in a hurry. They want to do everything at once. They have no time to wait. How often does scripture warn us against this? It tells us that the godly righteous man shall not make haste. He is never subject to flurry and excitement and hurry. He knows God and he knows that the decrees and purposes and plan of God are eternal and immutable. But the foolish man is impatient. He never takes time. He is always interested in shortcuts and quick results. That is the chief characteristic of his mentality and his conduct. We are all familiar with this kind of person in ordinary life and quite apart from Christianity. He is the type of man who says, I must have a house at once. There is no time for foundations. He is always in a hurry. It's a really important warning and it shows us exactly the type of person who is slack in their hand or who is always considering shortcuts because the, pers the, the work itself, which they see perhaps as unimportant or not so critical to their life, and they cannot see beyond the moment. And with that type of limitation, it really keeps them from knowing the Lord and serving others. And that's the shortcut life always trying to find the easiest route to something. Worthy work requires the character of one who refuses to allow shortcuts. 
and hard labor to finish the task well. And the work itself teaches us that when we refuse to take shortcuts and when we refuse to make excuses and we just plow through and persevere, character grows and things change in our hearts. So are you growing in your character because of your work? It should happen regardless of the labor that you do, whether you're a mom at home and you've chosen instead of going to pursue a career path, you've decided to stay at home and that's a worthy work. Whether you're in the workforce, whatever career, whatever path, whatever section or sector of work that you're in, whether the world thinks it's really wondrous and admirable or whether the world thinks it's menial, God cares not ultimately for the work. When you are in heaven, when you're with the Lord, it will matter zero what you do for a living today. Zero. But your character, now that matters eternally. And so what he's trying to do through your labors in whatever career field or whatever call that you have right now, even as a student, even if you are a student, he doesn't care about what school you go to. He doesn't care about what type of grades you get. What he cares about is your character. And it's hard because I know this as a parent who's raised you now three children in college, post-college, high school. I'm always fighting this tension, this battle of saying, I actually care about the character. But in some way, the character is shown through product through results. But then the danger is that those results have a particular picture to the world. And there is this false assumption that to get into certain types of schools or to have a certain type of career path automatically means success, faithfulness. And that's sometimes absolutely not true. The investment banker who makes you know, multiple millions of dollars, they could be smart, laborious, uh, diligent, but yet absolutely fail in worthy work. So it is important to realize that what the Lord is asking us of is to really wrestle with why are we working the way that we work? And what is going on in your heart when trials come at work? If you get a promotion, is there ever at all an instinct within your heart to say, Lord, if you should call me to not take this, I am willing to follow you. Why is it that automatically if we get a raise or if we get a, a better position, that our first assumption is God is with me. He's blessing me. Do we ever ask the question, Lord, are you honored by me taking this promotion? Because that promotion might mean more time, moving your family to a new place where there's no fellowship, there are no people, then you're not gonna grow in the Lord, your children will not, and the automatic assumption is, well, but I'm, I'm gonna be making more money. I'm gonna be more comfortable. And surely God wants that for me. See, if we are only focused on the work itself being the end goal of life, then we'll always go where the money is, where the position is, where the fame is. And the assumption then on the back end is God is blessing me, so therefore I must do it. 
And I can't tell you how many people who have lived for that but have lost their soul. Have you slacked off, though, at work because the work is beneath you? Because you're not being really appreciated enough. And because we think we're better than that. To do so means that we're not working honest work, meaning we're not working unto the Lord. We're doing it for the applause of people and for the glory of myself. If I really am working for the Lord, regardless of even whether anyone is watching or anyone notices, I will still be faithful to the labor. And again, this goes to any and all labors. Students, I address you again, which is, why are you studying? Is it for your parents? Is it to get into a certain type of school? And if the answer is, honestly, yes. My mom and dad, if you knew them. But I do know them, by the way. <laughs> May it not be because of that. May it be because you want to do honest, God-focused work so that he will use you for his kingdom and his glory. And it might mean one day you will be in this pulpit preaching. I pray that that will happen, that there will be some young men called to actually be in pastoral ministry or in the mission field. So it has nothing to do with the labor. And may it be that, yeah, you have gotten 4.0 and you've taken all these APs so that you can be in pastoral ministry. Really? Why is it that the assumption is I should work hard and study hard and get good grades so I can make a lot of money, so I can be really comfortable, and so I can um, you know, buy a really nice car and a nice home for my parents? Why is it that way? Because we have made work the end goal to life. That's not worthy work. That's a failed labor. That is a dead-end job. It doesn't matter how much money you make. There, it is literally a dead end, literally and spiritually. Worthy work requires our character. We have to ask these questions to ourselves. Another one is, again, are you regularly late for meetings? Are you regularly late for Sunday worship? Are you regularly late for appointments? Because, and it's always traffic and the kids. If that's the case, then we're not doing honest work. We're not really doing it unto the Lord. And really, if we're honest with ourselves, there's laziness involved. I woke up late. So waking up late, and then I have to rush everything. And by the time I get to a certain point, I, don't, I have no time for the Lord. I have no time for anything. And along the way, I have to constantly lie because I have to put up a, a certain impression. Well, you know, traffic was bad. And I, you never want to say I overslept or I just wanted to you know, take care of these things first. Beware of the poverty of our souls. That's not just about money, but it's the impoverishment of our hearts. And to do so, to give ourselves over to this poverty is what Proverbs calls the fool. So that's how worthy work builds the foundation of character. Second, worthy work blesses others. Work should bless others in some way. We don't just work to provide for our family. I think that's the problem, is that we think of work 
solely as a means of provision. It's one purpose of work. It can be, but it is certainly not the fundamental reason why we work. We work because we honor God. We work because we want to bless other people. And talking with people who are in sales, and I know some of you are, I always hear this, that the best salespeople absolutely believe in their product and also believe that their product helps their lives. They believe that. And so they will work hard to sell that product. And that's what worthy work does. It believes in what we, who we are so much that we want others to experience that work as well. I want you to read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And Paul says this to the church. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The, the linkage between working with your hands, and that always refers to diligence, because working with your hands requires labor, physical labor, right? And the consistency of labor. That is in contrast with um, the person who doesn't mind their own affairs, doesn't live quietly. And Paul also says essentially the same thing to the church in Ephesus when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.13. He says this, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, these people, what are idlers? They are people who do not work. It was one of the problems of the churches, actually, is that some thought the church would take care of them. And so they didn't actually do anything. In other words, they became consumers. They sat in the church and listened. They'd be fed. They would, Paul would preach. And they didn't do anything. They just sat there week to week and just listened while a group of people are serving and taking care, you know, they're literally meeting in homes, so some are cooking, some are moving things around, some, and, but there are some people who are literally doing nothing except just being a participant. They're a consumer. And that person, Paul says, is not only an idler, a slacker, but he says they are the ones who are most prone to being gossips, busybodies, and have a critical spirit. I mean, I, I imagine if you ever watched the Muppets and uh, there were those two old guys in the balcony and all they did was just complain about everything that the, the frog was doing and the pig was doing, you know, they'd just be complaining about the frog and the pig sitting there in the balcony. That's who these people are, the balcony sitters, you know, just complaining about what everyone's doing. I said this in the first worship, but I don't know if you noticed, but in the first slide, there was uh, no space between one of the words. I thought it would have been corrected, but it wasn't <laughs> in, the, in the first song. And whenever something like that happens, you know what tendency there is? Is to go look at the back and be like, look at the media person. 
and see, well, why aren't you doing your job? You know, we become balcony sitters, you know, really sitting, oh, you, you, you kid, can't even do it. You know, I, I wanted to say this. Um, it, it, it just fits so well is that, uh, so uh, Isaiah's doing media, Elizabeth is doing sound today, and since COVID started, I asked both of them, would you be willing to do this? And they have been doing it since COVID started. And Isaiah's going to college this week, Elizabeth in a couple of weeks, and they will be gone. But they've been doing this since COVID started when no one was here. And uh, thankful for them, you know, all their labors, you know, for doing that. But it's easy to criticize, right? Oh, the bathroom doesn't have enough toilet paper today. What's wrong? Who's not doing their job? You know, or the uh, whatever it might be, gospel trained. There's why is the class so big? And what we fail to see is that someone's not volunteering. There are a lot of balcony sitters. Are you a balcony sitter? Are you someone who is idling? The idlers are the most oftentimes the criticizers. It just goes hand in hand. It's the point of Paul is to say, the reason why you serve the body of Christ is not for the church and not for God. You know why? First of all, God doesn't need a single person here, including me. If I don't preach or there is no pastor ever preaches, if God wants preaching, the rocks will cry out. So he doesn't need me. And he certainly doesn't need any one of us in this room to have his church. That's the reality. But he allows us to be a part of what he's doing because he knows that to do so fills our souls. It satisfies us in ways that this world and all of its labors never will. And so... You need to serve the body of Christ not because we need you and not because God needs you, but because you need it for your own soul or your soul will shrivel up and die and you will become an idler, a gossip, a busybody, someone who's just going around saying what's wrong and that kills you eternally. One of the reasons why we have so many of our students serve the church is that the wider body, and it's not just within a smaller group, is that we want to raise up not teenagers who will follow the Lord, but men and women. And it starts at the youngest of ages. I mean, it's important. And if you're a parent, you want your child to serve the church in some capacity. You want that instilled as early as possible to get away from the mindset of, oh, you're a consumer. So the first instinct that you go is, how shall I shop for a church? I like the preaching, I like the worship, I like the fellowship groups, and you go and become a consumer again. And that heart dries up quickly. And it is no wonder that so many people are turning away from Christ, young people, because they've been consumers for so long. And we helicopter parents, we have enabled that because we think kids can't do that. And you, if you are not serving, they're just following your lead. It doesn't matter how you serve. See, the work itself matters zero. It doesn't. Whether you're preaching, whether you're running the cameras, whether you're cleaning up upstairs, whether you're teaching nursery, whether you're just simply holding babies, what, 
what that is doing is it's saying, I'm living for someone else unto the Lord. But if you're not doing anything, you're in danger. And it is not because we need you. We do not need you. But we invite you to come and join him. And so I really, really want to urge you to that. I just came back from a, a middle school camp, CBM middle school camp. And what I found was that, and I love this, is that the college students who are the counselors, the directors, the pastors there, all, most of them were campers themselves. Because they received the blessings themselves, they wanted to share that with others to their great cost. So all of them paid to go to that retreat. They take vacation out days. They spend their time and energy and efforts. These are college students and lay people. Why do they do it? Because cannot be a consumer. And in talking with them, I just see their growth, their love for the Lord. It's a direct correlation. And so people who refuse to give and serve others, they never experience God's grace and in, in the sweetness of it. They don't find Jesus delightful. I really love the way that Tim Keller describes this. He says this, if the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, then our work inevitably becomes less and the work and uh, work becomes less about the work and more about us. Our aggressiveness will eventually become abuse, our drive will become burnout, and our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. But if the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor, and we are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. And this is so true. I've seen this in many different ways. I, I wanted to give like personal illustrations from my own family. If we had another hour, I would do that because I've seen how as we pursue and push our, my own family to pursue Christ above else, he never disappoints us, never. And I, th I think you'll see this to be the case is that when you put Jesus first, the just the values that they learn in that process not only makes a difference in their pursuit of Christ, but the overflow of that is they make an impact in the world. Even in the world standards, there's excellence. Because think about what it means to be a believer. Faithfulness, diligence, trust, hope, joy, patience, all those things that the world is sorely in need of. When we are following Christ and place him above all else, and our children see that, they actually grow fruitful, not only in the church, but in the world. But I am afraid too many of us have bought into this great deceptive lie that to cause my child, my family, my life to excel in the world and make that its greatest purpose, we might gain the whole world, but we will lose our soul. And to do that is tragic. Do not be a person who pursues work as your end. You'll be sorely disappointed, but to follow Christ is everything. Let me just finish with this last point, and it's the biggest reason why worthy work is able to press forward is that worthy work reflects the Savior's work. 
Proverbs 22, 4 says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Do you believe that? But the promise there is not you're going to be wealthy if you follow Jesus. That's called prosperity gospel, and that's a false gospel. But he does promise riches and honor and life. It doesn't look always the way that we think of how it looks. But one thing is for sure is eternally unmatchable. When we make Jesus the object of our life, our work, when we humble ourselves, when we trust him to do and to be faithful in even the smallest of labors, what his riches will be. As uh, George Beverly Shea sings, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. You know, to recognize that, to follow him, is everything is because of what Jesus has done. Let me show you Jesus' work. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, the Father's work. John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now, and I am working. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While Jesus was in this world, he worked, he labored. It was never easy for him. Never. No applause, no thankfulness, never paid, he worked infinitely in his labors and he was paid zero for it. He was not applauded. He was infamous, but not famous. He was constantly criticized. He bore these burdens. He was the object of scorn. His work was filled with true suffering and agony. But that did not stop him from completing the most worthiest of work, ever. In fact, in, at the climax of his, the agony of his work, when it was finally done, as we see in John 19.30, as he was on that cross, he said, it is finished. The work is done. The work is done. Do you know why we labor this way? Because it is finished. Jesus did the work. He did the work so that you can rest. He did the work so that you can experience the riches of his rewards. He did the work so that you can be free. He did the work so that you can have joy. My friend, that's why you are faithful in your career. That's why we don't always jump at the most money, better position. That's why we serve God's people, even though no one says anything, because he finished his work. Let's pray together. Father, I really want to pray for every man, woman, student in this room. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in our labors. That we would do so because we know you were faithful, Jesus, eternally in your labor. Oh, at such a high price. 
And we respond to that work by what we do. As we come to this table, help us not to forget this. It may be the motivation by which we are faithful, which we have integrity, which we labor together. Thank you, Father, for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.